This is the morning brief from the Economic Times. Okay, guys, five, four, And with that ringing of the bell, Zomato made a delicious debut at the Bombay Stock Exchange. One of the defining moments of 2021 for founders Dipinder Goel and Gaurav Gupta and for the entire community of startup and consumer tech upstarts who are rewriting how we shop, sleep, eat, live, learn, play pay, get entertained, and even find romance. Zomato simply zoomed, skyrocketing 66% on debut, even hit the 20% upper circuit on day one itself, nearly doubling IPO investors' money. Tell me, if that doesn't make you happy, what would? Nike followed in similar style with another stellar listing. It was a day of a bumper listing for the Nike IPO. There was strong demand for the IPO, so stellar listing was expected. But this stellar nearly doubled on listing day. One lakh crore in terms of market cap also became the 55th largest company on the Indian bourses. Just days later, Policy Bazaar popped too. But with all the hype and hoopla of being the largest Indian IPO till date, Paytm's listing was a poor show, bringing out the worst in founder Vijay Shekhar Sharma. Why? Why public market investors are far more sophisticated? What, what kind of uh, statement is that, that private market investors... No, no, I'm asking you, it's a question. Public market investors are far more sophisticated. Uh, public yeah. market investors are far more sophisticated. They subscribe to our IPO, they put a price. So are you judging people who invested in us as dumb? The magnitude of such IPOs, especially for internet companies, have been unheard of in our country so far. It was proof that our homegrown technology upstarts are for real and don't just gobble cash but also give bumper returns to those who keep the faith. 2021 belongs to these young Turks, many of whom first-time entrepreneurs who changed the corporate narrative and silenced the cynics. They were testament to the hard work that went into each one of them. And this in turn led to an increased belief in the future. If there is one thing and only one thing 2021 uh, is remembered for, I hope it is for the fact that startups and companies that have been private have actually managed to break the glass ceiling and become public companies. I think it's a big milestone. Whether it is the inflection point remains to be seen because markets go up, markets go down. In this special episode, we will discuss why the year has been so defining for the entire ecosystem. Mega IPOs, massive capital inflows, consolidation and grand exits. But with interest rates hardening, will this party last forever? We will chat with two very special guests whom you just heard, G.V. Ravi Shankar and Sanjeev Bhikchandani. It's Friday, 24th December, Christmas Eve. You're listening to the second installment of the year-end special on The Morning Brief with me, your host, Arijit Barman, from The Economic Times. 
Today's episode, we are calling it Startup Nation. My first guest who is joining us from Dubai is G.V. Ravi Shankar, Managing Director, Sequoia Capital, one of the largest backer of Indian entrepreneurs for close to 16 years. In Sequoia, G.V. himself has nurtured several internet and tech champions, from Baiju Ravindran of Baiju's, the EdTech Colossus that is reportedly eyeing an US listing at $48 billion valuation. Yes, you heard it correct. $48 billion valuation. Or Rebel Foods, another freshly minted unicorn that claims to be the world's largest internet restaurant company and many, many others. Now, for the longest part, the questions about India were not about whether India had the opportunity or the entrepreneurs or um, a bright future or not, but really about saying, look, where are the scale businesses and hence, where are the exits from these markets? I do think 2021 will hopefully be remembered for answering that question, that companies of scale have been built, companies uh, of scale are able to now access the public markets and translate what was otherwise private market cap to publicly and widely held shareholding. And this is something that is special about 2021. And with that, I think there is a lot more interest in the tech sector uh, more than ever. So you have exits and that in turn gives confidence to investors to put more money. So capital for India has also been going up. Oh, 100%. And this year would certainly be a record year. And uh, uh, every quarter has seen kind of more and more capital come through. You know, that is all linked to kind of performance on the ground in many ways of companies actually starting to show that uh, they can build scale businesses and build value for the uh, shareholders. Let's get some statistics here. In 2021, India saw the highest amount of venture capital funding ever at $23.5 billion in the first 11 months of the fiscal, surpassing China. That created 42 new unicorns or companies with billion dollar and plus valuation. And also perhaps the most important marker, the exit environment in India have been at an all-time high as well. At $30 billion from 165 companies as per data from VC Edge and Traxon. And it's been more broad-based. We have fintech companies going public. We have a delivery companies, Zomato going public, we have Policy Bazaar, again, in the insurance space. So different companies, multiple sectors, that's what makes it more exciting, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the reality is technology in India has gotten really deep in terms of adoption. Um, We all know hundreds of millions of smartphone users. We all have seen how UPI has kind of really uh, grown so rapidly and so on. So everything has kind of come together, payments, data, access, willingness to transact, trust. Uh, all of this has kind of gone in the right direction for companies to be able to build scale businesses, right? And that's the that's really what's heartening to see. And absolutely like you're pointing out, it is not limited to one sector, but it's wide. And that's because actually technology has actually become widely adopted and used, not just by consumers, but also by businesses. And Would you say the pandemic or one and a half years of working from home um, has actually positively influenced digital adoption? And that also was played a big role in the growth um, of many of these companies? 
Yeah, definitely the pandemic in a way for these online first companies has really been a shot in the arm and uh, adoption curves have steepened thanks to the fact that supply side has been shut for the large part. When supply side issues are there, uh, demand doesn't vanish. Demand just shifts to other channels where uh, supply is still available and people are able to kind of deliver to them. So we've seen in multiple sectors, e-commerce for sure, and so has it been in uh, edtech and even health tech and some of these areas where people have had access issues, otherwise offline, have moved online. And so this is kind of well understood how much of these gains will continue to stay back and how much will kind of go back to traditional behavior is yet to be seen and it could vary by sector. People will realize the good and the bad of each of these things and then we'll find a, a kind of somewhat of a stable territory and then after that somewhat secular growth to more adoption of technology. What at least for me was also interesting is the fact that B2B companies which were not so popular among many of us <laughs> They are getting the traction. B2C companies, people can relate to them. People use them all the time. Getting capital for them or making a capital market success out of them is perhaps a little easier. But this year, we saw Freshworks IPO in the US. Buildes getting sold for close to $5 billion. So B2B is also getting its recognition. It's due under the sun. Definitely. A lot of the small businesses are really like consumers, right? Like in a way, like if you look at the India situation and you look at uh, companies that are focusing on the small merchants, uh, let's say somebody who's a shopkeeper, that person, while being in the shop is a business owner, but otherwise is himself a consumer or herself a consumer. And when you think about that, why should software not be as easy and as intuitively built the way it is built for consumers versus when you think about enterprise, Things start looking clunky and bulky and 50,000 features, which are so hard to, you know, navigate through. And I think this transition of, you know, and we call it kind of consumerization of the enterprise, making the product so easy to uh, adopt and install that you don't have this very long cycles of adoption. I think those are things that have made it easier. And as adoption improves, then of course, you will see the funding also come through to help increase the adoption and to increase the you know, scale of these businesses. Some of these things have also made the world flatter. In that, what spoke about Freshworks built out of Chennai for the world, right? And it's now possible for you to address any enterprise, any small business anywhere in the world, thanks to ability to target them through digital marketing, ability to sell them over an inside sales model, and so on. But as as you gave the example of Freshworks, and that brings me to the next question: that Freshworks got listed in US, and the more and more companies actually go and list themselves in Nasdaq or any other overseas market, there is this debate that why are we exporting capital? These are homegrown new age champions. Shouldn't they be listing in India? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a good question. I think the question to ask really is uh, not where the shareholders will like the uh, ability to trade a certain stock but what's right for the company and the business. So let's take a company like Freshworks, right? which is, uh, yes, a homegrown company, but much of their market is in the US. And they have to build credibility in the eyes of the business owner on the other side in the US, who is their potential customer. They have to build a team of people that have to go sell to these business owners or enterprises that are buying their software. right? So there's a lot of business reasons why a company may actually want to be listed abroad. And frankly, uh, it is also linked to kind of global aspirations. If you want to do M&A across the world, 
what currency is kind of seen as you know valuable. Um, some of these things influence where people may want to list their companies. So I think the the question for a founder is not about like which set of shareholders should he carry in his journey uh, as a listed company and which geography should him in that. It's really what's right for the company and its business. And I think that should be the reason they should decide what one jurisdiction versus the other. But do you feel that earlier this this whole narrative that U.S. investors are more sophisticated. They understand these companies. But post Zomato, post Nike, I mean, this, I mean, would you say that? Oh, 100%. 100% you're right. I think even if you look at Indian IPOs and who are the participants in the IPO, of course, there is a domestic bucket and retail and so on. But there is also a significant qualified institutional buyers bucket and within that lots of uh, foreign investors. It's the same set of names. You have the capitals of the world, the fidelities of the world, the Tiropas of the world that are all investing in India as well. Now, the one difference, and we have to agree that it's a difference, is the markets in the US in terms of the number of funds that can participate is just deeper because you don't have to, like if you have to invest in India, you have to you have some registrations involved, you may have to structure yourselves and so on and so forth, which not everybody may want to do just as yet because we are still not seeing the depth of IPOs and so on for them to actually go through all the pain to do the registration and so on. So it's easier to attract a larger and wider pool of capital in the US because just the US markets are so much deeper and so many more funds are registered in those markets. That is obviously the only advantage you get uh, in with a 5-10 year period. Maybe these things will get arbitraged out. More people will be in India as well. But in today's market, one could argue, yes, there is a little bit of a wider uh, participation that's possible if you're listed in the US. But that said, you're absolutely right that what Zomato and Nike and others are proven is that if you have a good business, then enough capital is available to you. Got it. We saw China turn into literally a nanny state with the crackdown, first on fintech and then on edtech. Um, your firm is an investor in India as well as in China for years now. What would you say to what extent the crackdown in China played its part in making India a far more attractive destination for investments. Have we been a big beneficiary of this crackdown? I don't know if there is data to uh, establish that, but intuitively, I would say definitely we are a beneficiary. Now, if you look at every uh, fund, uh, which is global, they will have an emerging markets bucket, right? And now China, Brazil, India, some of these markets are broadly in that category of emerging markets. But the reality is, if you are a US investor and you had allocation for non-US which are the markets you're really going to go to. And China was a large part of this for a large number of people. And obviously, China had also delivered spectacular returns in the last decade or even 15 years. So a lot of allocation was going to China. Now, in many ways, um, some of the changes in regulation, etc., has uh, created jitters with investors because it is not about whether something should be regulated or not. It's always about stability of regulations that people care about, right? Like people want to know that it's predictable. People want to know that something will not be changed on them overnight. These are things that really create issues for uh, investors. So now, obviously, these are the differences between India and China, which is India being a democracy. You will not have these things usually. And there is usually a process of debate and, and inputs and consultations and so on. So um, I, I'd say, yeah, if we continue to remain a more stable um, geography in terms of regulations and, and clarity and longevity of some of these uh, things that we do, then we'd certainly benefit significantly thanks to some of this capital that is still waiting to find its way to growth markets like ours. Sequoia has been around for 16 years. So you've seen entrepreneurs 
come in all shape and form. What's the key difference when you see an entrepreneur of 2021 versus the crop that you, who approached you, say, a decade back? So, Rajit, a great question. And I would say ambition and um, call it courage. These would be the top two, in my view, uh, that are different between now and what things used to be. And the reason for that is really that many more people have seen scale, right? Like com- people that come out of an Amazon, people that come out of a Flipkart, people that uh, have come out of companies that have already become large, have seen what it means to scale a business. And that is allowing them to kind of not be afraid of the zero to one journey or even the one to 100 journey. And then they're starting to think about saying, hey, where can I go from 100 onwards? And so the willingness to think very big, thanks to many more people ahead of them who have shown the way that you can build a $1 billion company, you can build a $10 billion company, you can build a global business. These examples that are being set by the Girishas of the world and the uh, Sachin and Bignis of the world and the Baijus of the world are helping other people saying, hey, if they can do it, I can also attempt to do it. I don't need to be afraid because if somebody is able to do it, we should also be able to do it and we can back ourselves to do it. I think this this ambition and the courage is what's so different between founders of today and founders that were uh, that we were intersecting 15 years ago, say, right? And of course, it's uh, it's uh, helped by the fact that there's more capital available, which means those dreams and desires are being given wings more often than, you know, what it used to be 15 years ago. So that is a very strong positive concoction that's helping, you know, uh, us see all this, you know, phenomenal innovation that we are seeing and the growth that we are seeing. So unicorns are no longer mythical creatures that we read about when we were growing up. They are now 42 and counting in just one year. So it's it's been an amazing ride, no doubt. But will this party continue? Or as we see interest rates rising, liquidity being sucked out from the equity markets, the mood will be a tad subdued going ahead. Arjit, again, uh, I do think we have to prep for 2022 not being as vibrant, as uh, buoyant as 2021 was. We all know what's going on. While it's amazing to see all the progress, there is also pockets we are seeing a lot of excess. Thanks to kind of the liquidity uh, that we've seen in the global environment, lots of people have seen a lot of wealth creation in, in technology globally. And then that money is actually finding its way into startups and young companies. We are definitely seeing what we would think of as, hey, can't explain why type situations where things are getting funded uh, much greater than they need and much faster with a limited ability to do any real diligence and so on. So I think some of these things we don't think are uh, healthy situations to be in for the long term. I do expect uh, to see a slowdown and a correction. And I think it's healthy. It's healthy that you should have these periods of uh, sprints and then these periods of rests and consolidation where, you know, kind of there is a recovery process and you settle in both your learnings and kind of planning gets better, etc. I think this is what we should expect in 2022. Uh, I think it's for the better of the industry and we'll come out far stronger if we are able to do that versus continue to keep running really hard. This was also the year that separated the men from the boys. Organized sector companies pulled away from unorganized ones Tech-enabled ones pulled away from those whose technology was not up to speed and the well-funded ones pulled away from those who were not. With all the capital and tech, some like Siddharth Shah, a 32-year-old computer graduate and IIM Ahmedabad alum, 
and the founder of PharmEasy, that is India's largest e-pharmacy, could buy rivals like Medlife or even older peers like Thyrocare and bulk up to compete with large Indian and global competition. PharmEasy's Thyrocare acquisition was the first instance a Desi unicorn buying out a listed company. It is the time of homecoming for Indian startups. It is the first time that a unicorn in India is now acquiring a listed company. But coming to the business rationale, we are very firm believers that outpatient healthcare in India must be made holistic and from a single point of care. We believe that a patient requires consultation, a patient requires a test, patient requires treatment, which is primarily medicines and products. And with all of this at one place, a patient's entire journey can be with one single player and one single partner. Even our homegrown old economy corporations like Reliance or Tata's realized when it comes to internet, it's best to buy than try and build in-house. So after buying e-pharmacy chain NetMeds and Urban Ladder in 2020, Reliance went on to acquire Just Dial, India's first super app. While some, like Piramal, inducted fresh blood, like Snapdeal's founder Kunal Behel, on its board. There's a big announcement coming in from the deal street. Justile is going to be acquired by Reliance Retail Venture. So Reliance uh, Retail Ventures is looking to acquire over 66% stake in Justile by way of this transaction. Not to be left behind in the race to create its own version of a super app, even the Tatas went shopping. From e-grocer Big Basket to online pharmacy 1MG, Tata's even invested in CureFit and got its founder Mukesh Bansal to steer its own digital businesses. When large uh, Indian business houses begin to acquire companies or they begin to enter the space, it is a validation of the space. It means that the space has come of age. It also provides an exit to some of the early investors in these companies and that incentivizes them to invest more because they got a good outcome. That's Sanjeev Bhikchandani founder and executive vice chairman of InfoEdge, arguably the biggest messiah of the Indian startup story. The man who not only launched popular search websites like Nokri.com, Jeevansathi.com or 99acres.com, but also over a 14-year period invested 1,500 crore rupees to back new age poster boys like Zomato and Policy Bazaar. Interestingly, he has not cashed out from either of them despite their multi-bagger IPOs. On a personal level, you must be mighty pleased. Two of your uh, babies or portfolio companies, Zomato as well as Policy Bazaar, spectacular listings. Look, obviously we are happy, right? But the truth is the credit goes to the, the Policy Bazaar and Zomato teams and, not to us, and less to us. We are merely investors. Our job was to spot them infuse some capital and hang on. They did all the hard work and they deserve all the credit. It's their genius, it's their effort, it's their idea, it's their hard work. But you didn't exit. You chose to stay invested. Why was that? That that surprised a lot of people. I, I think if you have faith in the long-term prospects of the company and you don't really need the money, you'll probably hang on. And that's what we did. But for every Zomato and a policy bazaar, there was a PTM. I've always maintained that um, you know, a stock going underwater 
post listing is uh, not the best of things to happen to that company, but companies have bounced back in the past, right? It's about execution every quarter, uh, you know, and making sure business does well. So if you look back in history, I think the Infosys IPO back in 1993 had trouble getting past the finishing line. Look what a great company was built. And if you look at Facebook, you know, immediately after the IPO, the, the price went uh, below the below below the offer price and it bounced back. And a, and a truly great company has been built. So this is not the end of the road for them. It's perhaps a new beginning. Uh, a milestone has been reached. Now, you know, continue executing. Got it. What worries you? Uh, you know, because there are indeed some pockets of excesses where valuations seem frothy, where, you know, there are too many players jostling for market and wallet share. Is that worrying? Does that, does that, you know, bother you? Or that's almost, that's not normal evolution? Look, that is normal evolution. I mean, there will be, you know, in boom times, there will be parts of the market where the valuations are frothy and you live with that, right? Um, and if valuation is frothy, you know, it's, it does not mean the business is not viable. The, the real worry is that tomorrow, if liquidity, liquidity goes away, uh, you know, companies and founders should be in a position where they're able to come through that patch. And therefore, they built cost structures and business models which uh, render the company viable. I think uh, that's what is uh, founders should focus on. But would you or do you see a change in the way investors as well as entrepreneurs now look at businesses or building businesses in the sense that earlier it was predominantly growth led, therefore top line led versus now the conversation around profitability, about bottom line, fiscal discipline, even early on is getting more and more mainstream? Well, no, no. Well, early on, no, but I would say that uh, certainly as companies mature, you know, there are greater conversations uh, about profitability and, and, and bottom line. Early on, you know, you're going for growth, you're going for, you know, land grab, you're going for building IP, you're going for traffic and downloads, um, all the good things that will ultimately hopefully lead to revenue and, uh, and profitability. Would you say that in India, the regulation and policymakers have not really evolved at the speed at which, you know, companies have. And and that's where there is still a bit of a tension. Look, that always happens. If you go back and look at the cable TV industry, uh, cable TV came about and proliferated before the regulation for it came, before enabling rules came. When a new technology comes, that often happens. If crypto is happening, the government is now trying to regulate it. Internet happened before the IT Act came into being. That always happens. That's a, that's a normal course of things, and uh, I'm not uh, too worried about that. What is Sanjeev Bichindani looking at right now? What's the next, or where is the next Zomato or Policy Bazaar for you? So we don't do it top down. We do it bottom up. We don't decide a sector and say, hey, let's look at the sector. We just meet a few hundred entrepreneurs every quarter. Uh, we look for good ones. Uh, good entrepreneurs pursuing good ideas and the ones uh, which we think uh, make sense we try and invest in and that's how we found some that's how we found policy bazaar we did not pre-decide hey let's look at restaurant listings it'll be a big space no you can you can't predict that early on you just do it bottom up what's bubbling through and that's how we do it okay so final words your advice to budding entrepreneurs well uh, i always say a couple of things to people the first thing I say is dream big, but start small. Start small because, uh, you know, you, 
you will make mistakes and the mistakes will not be too expensive if you're starting small and you'll learn the ropes. But yeah, you need to dream big because uh, that's what keeps you going. The second thing I like to tell young entrepreneurs is that uh, the customer's money is better than the investor's money. Because if you're getting the customer's money, you know, and you're getting it at a price that's higher than your cost, and you're getting it repeatedly from the same customer, it means you probably have a viable business so long as you can get enough customers. And then the investor's money will almost certainly follow because investors love to invest behind businesses getting customer money. And it doesn't work the other way around. Just because you get the investor's money, it does not mean you get the customer's money. Right? So I would say, um, you know, the, the, the customer's money is better than the investor's money. And the third thing I'll say is that um, solve an unsolved problem. If you solve an unsolved problem, the customer will buy, you won't have to sell. As several of our unicorns and decacorns gather scale and list, it's time for them to mature as responsible corporate citizens as well. The first principle of being listed is being answerable to shareholders quarter after quarter. Thus, when some of them say they don't believe in being on the accountability treadmill, it smacks of immaturity. And as for the policymakers, they too need to step on the pedal and accelerate key reforms like allowing direct overseas listings for our startups or easing the taxation regime behind ESOPs. I'm Aurijit Barman and you've been listening to Startup Nation, the second installment of our year-end specials on The Morning Brief. This episode was produced by Nehal Chalyawala from The Economic Times and Soundarya Jayachandran from Awaz. Sound editor Varun Kapahi from Awaz. I hope you enjoyed listening to the episode. Do send in your feedback to the morning brief at timesgroup.com and share the episode on your social media networks. The morning brief drops every Tuesday, Thursdays, and Fridays. Thank you for listening in and have a nice weekend. Merry Christmas from all of us. Goodbye. Good luck. All clips used in this episode belong to their respective owners. Credits are mentioned in the description.